Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, where each week we look at how education is changing. I'm Emily Tate, a reporter here. It was about a month ago now that the United States ushered in its 46th president. And if you were listening to Joe Biden's inaugural address that day, you might recall that he spoke at length about unity. 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 He mentioned the word 11 times in his 19-minute speech as he implored Americans to set aside their differences and come together as one nation. Biden argued that unity offers the best way forward if our country hopes to heal from the many crises it currently faces. With unity, we can do great things, important things. We can right wrongs. We can put people to work in good jobs. We can teach our children in safe schools. We can overcome the deadly virus. We can reward, reward work and rebuild the middle class and make health care secure for all. We can deliver racial justice and we can make America once again the leading force for good in the world. That's definitely a tall order, though. And even Biden admitted the practical challenges. I know speaking of unity can sound to some like a foolish fantasy these days. I know the forces that divide us are deep and they are real. But I also know they are not new. Our history has been a constant struggle between the American ideal that we're all created equal and the harsh, ugly reality that racism, nativism, fear, demonization, have long torn us apart. Like millions of Americans, Mylene Duong was listening to Biden's speech that morning. And I'm like half watching it and half getting ready for work. So I'm in my bathroom. Joe Biden is on my laptop. My laptop is precariously balancing on the sink. And, you know, I've got my laptop on like maximum speed. I'm trying to blow dry my hair on low speed so I could still hear the speech. But she noticed something in his address that most people probably missed. Duong is a clinical psychologist and social-emotional learning research scientist, and she heard in Biden's words a plea for people to start listening to each other, with the goal not of changing their minds, but of understanding them, to have more empathy for those who are different from us, and to resolve our conflicts. And I think what he did was he called on basic social-emotional learning skills and helping us repair and rebuild. He said, let's begin to listen to one another again. Let's hear one another, see one another, respect one another. And that really resonated with the work that I do in schools. For this week's podcast, I talked with Duong about how Americans became so divided, what it would take to achieve unity, and how the internet is making things like listening to and understanding one another so much more difficult for adults and children alike. From a, your clinical and research perspective, what stood out to you about the inauguration and, and President Biden's speech to the extent that you were able to catch what he was saying? Um, how did his comments resonate with the work that you do? You know, he spent a lot of time in that speech talking about the need for us to unite as Americans. And he really spent a lot of time talking about the price that we've paid for the division and the bitterness that's been a part of the political dialogue in this country. And, you know, he's actually not wrong. Like the research really does show that there is this deepening divide in American politics. 
So the Pew Research Center is one of these organizations that's followed these trends over time. And in 2019, they showed that over the last several decades, Americans have been developing more and more negative views of the other party. So in 2019, 45% of Democrats said that they would be unhappy if their child married a Republican. And 35% of Republicans say that they would be unhappy if their child married a Democrat. Now, you compare that to, you know, five decades ago, in 1960, that percentage was 4%. 4% of Republicans and 4% of Democrats in 1960 said that they would be unhappy if their child married someone from the other party. So he really pointed out that America is facing a major crisis of partisanship and I think what he did was he called on basic social emotional learning skills and helping us repair and rebuild. He said, let's begin to listen to one another again. Let's hear one another, see one another, respect one another. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I mean, what would that look like? Those things, they sound a little simple, but are they actually? Yeah, a lot of people think that they are listening um, fully and often they're not. Uh, And listening is really a very complicated skill. So let me tell you a story from my clinical practice that that I hope will convey how difficult listening really is. So I've done a fair share of couples therapy. So, you know, husbands and wives, husbands and husbands, wives and wives would come in with their marital problems. And one of the first things that we work on in almost all of the cases was basic listening skills. So we started out with this exercise where one person would talk at a time and their partner's job, their entire job was to just listen and then repeat back to their partner what they think they heard and then ask their partner, did I get it right? So they had to wait their turn to talk basically until their partner felt like, okay, they really get it. They understand where I'm coming from. So We would do this exercise and it would take hours sometimes of this back and forth. So you repeating to me what I said until I finally feel like, okay, she gets it. You know, I also did my undergraduate degree in psychology. I got a PhD in psychology. I've been a practicing psychologist for 10 years. I still feel like my listening skills are constantly developing. And really, this is like any other social emotional learning skill, right? It sounds simple, but the development and the mastery of it is really a lifelong process. I think as a society, we also tend to conflate understanding someone's perspective with agreeing with them. So we have a really hard time like living in that gray zone where you can say, I see where you're coming from and it makes sense to me. And also I see it differently and my perspective also makes sense. And I think that that gray zone is where true listening really is. And a lot of the time when we think we're listening, we're actually distracted. You know, I mean, let's say we actually manage to like look up from our computer and put our phones down. But even with that, when we're listening to somebody talk, we're most of the time already thinking about how we want to reply because we naturally as humans want to be heard. And it's that desire of wanting the other person to understand us. That's primarily what gets in the way of listening and makes it so difficult. 
Can you say more about the difference between understanding someone and agreeing with them? I think maybe this shows how um, divided we are, but it seems, I think, that it might be hard to understand someone without agreeing with them. So can you make that distinction a little bit clearer? Yeah. I think the thing to remember is that our opinions and our beliefs always come from our experiences. And it's hard to remember that when we're thinking about other people and that their opinions and beliefs also come from their experiences. If you come in with the assumption that everybody's point of view developed from their experiences, which are valid, that can help you to understand how you could have arrived at different conclusions because you've had different experiences. Does that help? Yeah, that does. And you know, obviously, especially given the example you gave about couples therapy, this is not just Republican Democrat disagreement. This is, you know, something that comes up every day in our relationships and our friendships with our family members. Um, can you say a little bit more about that too? How this, how listening with the goal of understanding someone uh, also comes into play outside of politics. Yeah. So I had this couple once um, and they were fighting about washing the dishes as many couples do. And their problem was not actually that he wasn't doing it. So she cooks, he does the dishes. And their problem was not actually that he wasn't doing the dishes. It wasn't, it was that he wasn't taking the dishes out of the dishwasher, right. And loading them into the cabinets And then she would go into the kitchen and she would try to put something into the dishwasher and it would be full. So I think that often when we go into a conversation, just like this couple does and did, and um, we think that right away we have to make a decision, right? Like, so she's asking him, will you please take the dishes out of the dishwasher before I go into the kitchen to cook so that I can keep the kitchen clean as I'm cooking? So right away, his response is, I either have to agree with her, right, and change my behavior right away, or I stand my ground and I resist changing my behavior. And of course, we all resist changing our behavior. Behavior change is hard, right? But I think if you come into it thinking that you either have, that you have to agree or disagree, that you rush to the conclusion you preclude any kind of conversation and any kind of perspective that could actually come out of these conversations, right? So it's not that we don't want to eventually get to a resolution and a course of action. It's just that most of the time we're rushing there. So what we're trying to get people to do when we're saying listening to understand is to put aside that goal of reaching a resolution just for a second, Right, So that you can say, what is your perspective about this? Why is it so important to you that I do this? And you know what? After that, you could, after you hear your partner's perspective, you could still say, I'm sorry, but I'm not changing. That is still your choice. 
And I think people don't understand that they have that choice, that they can still choose whether or not to change their behavior, independent of whether or not they see their their partner's perspective. I think, as you mentioned, saying that you're still learning this every day, I think this is really hard stuff and and probably a lot harder than it um, even sounds on the surface. But you know, to someone who is open to improving, how might you teach an adult who already has their own opinions and beliefs? How do you, how do you teach someone to get better at this type of listening? Yeah, I think actually the first thing is to demonstrate to people the power of truly being heard. And in this exercise that I described to you earlier that I would have couples do in therapy, by the way, people hate doing this, especially at first, you know, they start to get, you know, they have to like hold back their own point of view. So they're horribly frustrated. They get skeptical, they get mad at each other, they start to get mad at me. I start thinking about dropping this whole thing altogether and just ending the session early. And I stick with it because when you keep at this listening long enough, you eventually reach that point where you truly feel heard. And for most people, this is actually such a rare thing for somebody to give us the space to and listen to everything that we have to say fully without any kind of agenda. And once you understand the power of that, then I think you are more open. Then I think you realize that most of the time what we're doing is not actually listening and that when we're talking about listening to understand, we're talking about taking it to another level. And then I think most of the time when we are trying to listen to understand, there's kind of two things that get in the way. One is the distractions, like we've talked about. So, you know, we're often trying to get something done. We feel rushed. We have our phones out. You know, our emails are dinging. So I think it's really being giving somebody 100% of your attention. And then the second thing is dropping your agenda. We know from research that whenever you have strong emotions, it narrows your attention and makes it more difficult for you to entertain other perspectives. So a lot of listening is about understanding what you're bringing into the situation, the emotions that you bring into the situation, using techniques to calm yourself down, at least for a moment, and dropping the agenda so you can, you can fully be there with the other person. I imagine um, this is a skill that starts pretty early uh, or, or could start early. So in your view, at what age should we be teaching kids to listen, to understand someone Yeah, it's actually a really complex skill that has a lot of layers. So we're born with a natural emotional empathy. So they've done these experiments, you know, from the 1950s and 1960s, where they put babies into a room where they hear another baby crying. And babies will start crying too when they hear another newborn crying. And this is one of the earliest precursors of emotional empathy. But it's actually not until about four that kids start to realize like what I think may be different from what you think. So they've done these experiments. I think they're called, what are they called? They're called unexpected object experiments. And um, let's say you bring Samantha into a lab 
and you show her a box and the box is clearly labeled as Smarties, right? Which is the type of candy that was popular when they were doing these experiments. And then you ask Samantha, what do you think is in the box, Samantha? She would say candy. And then you'd open up the box and the box would actually be full of a bunch of pencils. Then you say to Samantha, okay, I'm gonna bring Simon in next. What do you think Simon thinks is in the box? If you ask that question of a three-year-old, they'll say, Simon thinks there are pencils in the box because they cannot separate what they know and think from what someone else knows and think. But by the time they're four-year-old, most four-year-olds would correctly say that Simon would think it's candy because he doesn't yet know that the box just has pencils. And of course, empathy and perspective taking doesn't stop there at four years old. You know, in our second step program, we teach kids about kindness as early as preschool, but it continues on. Uh, So we start to introduce the idea of different people can have different wants and needs starting in the second grade. And, you know, as they get more advanced in age, in grades four and five, we start to get into, well, how do you take someone else's perspective? Why is empathy important in friendships? How do you get along with people when you don't like them? Things like that. So it really is a lifelong skill. And if if a child, then an adult, uh, masters a skill, what do they stand to benefit from it um, in their lifetime? Yeah, these skills have so many different benefits for kids and adults um, in terms of their relationships, in terms of their learning and achievement. So obviously, I think it's pretty obvious to see how listening to understand is going to help you be a better communicator, is going to help you have more empathy. For kids, it tends to increase kindness and what's called pro-social behavior, which is basically helping other people. Um, It's actually a target skill in a lot of programs for kids who struggle with aggression because listening and perspective taking and empathy are things that tend to decrease aggression. And the thing that I find most interesting, especially in the context that we're in right now, is that listening skills can reduce prejudice in in in-group, out-group situations, and it can also promote tolerance and conflict resolution which we all need a bit of right now. This is a big question. Do you have a sense of how we got here? I think that's a, that is a big question, but I also think it's a really interesting and important one. I think there's, um, there's a couple of things going on. I think it really is like the intersection of technological and societal changes and how it interacts with basic human nature. So I'm talking about things like there's this well-documented phenomenon in social psychology called the homophily effect. And that means, you know, birds of a feather flock together. And you see this in almost every characteristic, but you also see it in politics in that liberals tend to congregate together in cities and conservatives spread out in rural areas. So then you become more exposed to people who are more likely to share your point of view than not. We also, you know, we make friends and we marry people who are like us. Like one, only one out of five marriages is between a Democrat and a Republican. 
They also tend to be less happy, by the way. And then we also have this confirmation bias, which is another well-documented social psychology phenomenon. And what that means is that we have a tendency to look for and to remember information that's consistent with what we already believe. So if you show me something that is not consistent with how I think about the world, I may not pay attention to it. I'm less likely to remember it. I'm less likely to incorporate it into my long-term memory. And that I think has been magnified a hundredfold by these social media echo chambers where you know the search engines that we use and the news apps that we read and the social media platforms that we're on, they just serve us up the information that we wanna hear, which by the way, is the stuff that we already believe. And I think the other part of it is that the internet has really come to be such a major part of our life, but it has also really depersonalized debate and political dialogue. So when you, you know, if if you were living in the 1950s and the 1960s, the only way you could have political dialogue really is with a live person. But now at any point, you know, I could be debating with someone halfway across the country that I will never meet from behind my screen And there's, you know, a a certain amount of anonymity that comes from that. And it allows us to, and that gets in the way of our empathy. It allows us to do things that maybe aren't always consistent with our values. And it also makes the other person less human to us. Right. Like, why would you bother to take the time to listen and really try to understand where someone's coming from if they're just a profile on Facebook, right? Versus having a face-to-face conversation with a friend with whom you disagree. Right. And their comments are taken out of context. You really only see, you know, two to three sentences of their point of view. There's no opportunity for actual dialogue. You know, how often do you see a comment thread where somebody says, tell me more where that's coming from? You know, what What really informed that perspective? You know, that's just not the kind of dialogue that we have online. Yeah, no, that, I think that's a great point. I think what you said earlier, how so many of our beliefs are formed from our experiences. It's not like you're taking the time to understand the context that someone's in and their experiences that led them to that belief on the Internet. Right. We're just concerned with what's right and what's wrong. So what do you think that means um, for today's young people who are digital natives? Are they um, better off because they're more adept at navigating the internet and, and kind of understand it better? Or does it feel like that figure that you mentioned from Pew earlier is just going to keep ticking up? That is a really good question. And I'm actually not aware of any research that can give us a definitive answer on that. What I do know is that we probably should be doing something about it, though. Um, So in the education world, there's this focus on teaching media literacy in schools. So like Common Sense Media, for example, is an organization that's done a lot of work on this because kids get a huge amount 
of their information from different types of media. So what they do in media literacy is teach kids that media exists because people create the media and the people who create the media have a specific point of view. They have a specific aim for creating the media and you have to be critical consumers of media and responsible creators of media. And I think that that is something regardless of whether or not kids are going to be better or worse off than their parents because they're digital natives, I think we have a responsibility as a society to prepare them to deal with these challenges. Mylene, thank you so much. Absolutely. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Each week we feature conversations like this one. So if you like what you heard, please subscribe to keep up with future episodes. You can also support the show by taking a minute to tell us how we're doing with a rating or review. This episode was edited by me, Emily Tate, and produced by Jeff Young. Audio of Biden's inaugural address is courtesy of C-SPAN. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education. Thanks for listening.